friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. This morning, my name is Jonathan. If you haven't met me, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited uh, to share God's word with you this morning. And um, I just got a phone call from somebody, which rarely happens. Um, so, um, so, anyways, share God's word with you this morning, and, and really have uh, something to share that I think is important, and I think. Um, really means something for us as a church, very specifically for Skyline, but I think there's a reason that God's given me this to share this morning uh, when we have lots of visitors. For some reason, God always like puts stuff on my heart when we have like baby dedication or baptisms that is just awkward and uncomfortable. And uh, I don't know why that is, but uh, it'll probably be easier than the Sermon on Tongues that I gave last time, a few times ago, uh, when we had lots of visitors, which was super fun. Um, so, we're in 2 Timothy. If you've got your Bible, open to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to dig into this text and uh, trust that God's going to lead us somewhere that I think is going to be powerful. Um, Paul's talking to Timothy. If you remember, you've been here, you've heard this. If you're new, uh, you need to know that this letter is Paul's kind of last words to Timothy. He's writing his disciple, and he's like, these are the things that I need you to know. If I never get you another letter, and if I never see you in person again, here's what you need to know. Can you imagine uh, writing a letter to one of your best friends or to one of your children on your deathbed? If they couldn't be there in person, you're like, I need to communicate something. I want you to know these things, how important these things are that, that Paul is sharing with Timothy because he's handing the baton. He knows he's about to die and he's saying, listen, it's you now and it's the people you're entrusting this gospel to that's got to carry this thing for. The kingdom of God runs on relational lines and I'm going to hand it to you and you're going to entrust faithful people and they're going to entrust faithful people all the way till us, till today. Um, so that baton Paul handed to Timothy actually made its way to Oklahoma City to Skyline Church. Isn't that beautiful? And so this morning, we want to take really seriously what Paul's saying to Timothy. And we, we've talked about lots of things, but I, I think it's really interesting uh, because in the former passage, right, Paul's telling Timothy to flee youthful passions. He's saying, hey, I want you to make sure to get your life under control and don't quarrel and, and don't uh, let your life just be about all the fleshly things that you want and desire and would love to ch chase after the shiny, happy things. He's like, he's like, bring your life under the discipline of the Holy Spirit, right? Like, like come under his life and be gentle and be patient and endure evil and all these things. And then he gets to chapter three and he says, this is really interesting, but mark this. Oof, right, right in this letter, he's like, this is really important. You have to get this. And what does he have to get? There will be terrible times in the last days. Oh, <laughs> Like, that's what you want me to mark. Man, of all the things you want me to mark, you want me to mark that things are going to get difficult, right? 
And uh, I, I disciple a, a group of young guys, and we go through these things called the five rules. I can't remember if it's the five rules of manhood or it's the five rules of life. And I always get four out of the five, so don't judge me that I can't remember all five, even though I do all the time. And if the five things are basically like, you're not in control, you're not that important, life's not all about you, you are going to die. <laughs> and, and the writer's basically like, if you get these things into you, if you realize you're going to die someday and just let it go, and then just start seeking the Lord, like, but you've, you can't act like you're not going to die. You can't act like you're in control. You can't act as if terrible times are not going to come to your life because that would put you in some other world. That would put you in a fantasy world. It would put you in a compound somewhere or you're going to live your life on a cruise ship. And guess what? Those lives just don't exist. So, so Paul's like, Timothy, I need you to mark. There's going to be terrible times in the last days. And listen to what he says. People in those days, what will they be like? They'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, Proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's fascinating because you could almost take that and juxtapose it really quickly against 1 Corinthians 13. Right? Love does not boast. Love is not proud. Love endures all things, hopes all things. It's interesting. Paul's saying in the last days, love will start to disappear. And the goodness of love will no, no longer be trumpeted. It'll actually be seen as weakness. And people will reverse these things of God that have created all the good in the world, and they'll take an opposite direction. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful. When I read that, does that remind you of anywhere in the world right now? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it sounds like Paul peered through history and described America in 2023. Isn't it interesting now that, that like with social media and everything, like you can, it, it's like the whole thing is about boasting. It's literally like boasting, and now it's like boasting about boasting. Like there's a whole, I don't know if you guys are into this stuff, but there's a whole like kind of movement of like personality-based influencers who are all business people, and they all, they boast about how much money they've made and how many deals they've done, how smart they are, and how, well, how good they are at sales and scale, all this stuff. And it's literally, you can't have a brand if you don't boast. Because that's what the world's looking for. They're looking for like who can boast the best results and get a following. And then what happens when you get the following? You got to boast more, and you got to do more, and you got to have more, and you got to take pictures of your jet and your car and your clothes and your shoes and all this stuff. And you got to make everyone know what you have and what you're doing and why you're awesome. Because if you stop, it will go away. Lovers of money, boastful, proud. But it's interesting because on the other side of that is, is like pride and abuse. And like we've, we've never lived in, I think, I, and maybe never is too strong. I won't say that. Okay. The world has been really bad before. I think that's one of the things we, we got to realize, right? Like everybody's like, we've never seen this before. And I was like, I don't know. Have we not ever seen this before? Like across history, there's been wars and genocides and famines and, and awful, awful tragedies and suffering and, and all this stuff. And so I don't want to say never, but I, I think we live in one of the most slanderous ages. I mean, definitely in my life, the amount of slander 
tossed back and forth is incredible. And it's so harmful to human beings to live in a system, especially like in our politics today, where slander is just no big deal. Just no big deal to try to ruin somebody's life, to try to steal their reputation, try to destroy their business, their employment. And both sides love it. They love cancel culture. They hate it when it happens to them, and they love it when it happens to their enemy. And so what happens, it can't change because both sides realize the way to power is to do these things, right? And so it's, it's, it's incredible that Paul kind of shows Timothy, this is what things will be like. And then he tells them, have nothing to do with them. And you're like, how's that even possible? How's it possible to have nothing to do with people when this has become the culture? It becomes, it's the water we swim in. It's the air we're breathing. But this morning, I, I realized Paul is, is giving us a message. He's saying like, hey, there are certain days, there are times of peace, there's times of goodness, there's times of prosperity, but then there are times of difficulty and there's times that are terrible and there are times of decline and congratulations, you're living in the latter. <laughs> so, so I want you to think about this for a second. God ordained your life to overlap with the decline of the American church. And, and, and in a season of decline for our nation, politically, economically, educationally, like like your, your life, if we do the, the graph, it's like it is going this way and you were born and you're living in this time because God ordained it to be so. Isn't that fascinating? For such a time as this, God sent you into the world to live in these kind of times. So it begs the question, what are we to do in these kinds of times? How are we to live? And Paul's writing this letter to Timothy saying like, listen, these are the days you were born into and called to leadership in. So get ready. Right, in chapter two, he's like, be like a soldier, be like a farmer, be like an athlete who doesn't get to pick the times and the days and the kinds of games and who the opponent is. You suit up and you show up. What's the game today? Who are we playing? What's the game plan? How do we win and for Christians today, too many of us are suiting up for games that don't exist anymore. We're fighting battles where we don't know who the real enemy is, right? As, as we say a lot at Skyline, if it has flesh and blood, it's not your enemy. So who is your enemy and how do you fight against him in this age? If we're not careful, we'll, we'll be like Paul said, beating the air. <laughs> like we're doing things that just don't matter, but they look really good if you just watch it in a vacuum. Um, and if we're not careful, the church can spend its time beating the air in an age of decline and where the stakes are really high. But we have to learn, we have to say, we live in contested space. Karl Barth said this, and it's something that stuck with me for a long time. He says this, the, the, the church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of promise. Did you hear that? The church is called to set a sign up in a world that is radically different from the world, and which contradicts the world in a way that brings promise and hope. 
Or Eugene Peterson would say it this way, the church is called to be a, a colony of heaven in the country of death. Again, we are living in a season of the country of death. The question is, is the church a colony of heaven? Or has the church been colonized by the culture of death? Have we been co-optive? Have we been compromised? And so it's really interesting, because when you look at this scripture, it's really easy for Christians to read the scripture and just go like, the world is so bad, it's so ugly, it's so terrible, we're so right in our judgment of the world, and yet it's easy to skip verse 5, because I skipped it earlier. Did you notice that I skipped it? He reads all those things, and then he says, these kinds of people in the terrible last days will have a form of godliness, but denying its power. I don't think Paul's talking about the world in that list, because the world doesn't have a form of godliness while denying its power. Christians have forms of godliness while denying its power. Paul's saying, these, in the terrible last days, what you'll find is you'll find all of these things in the church. Whew. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. We said this before, if you have a sick culture, it usually means you have a sick church. So the church can't sit on the sidelines in America today and throw stones at the culture, saying, look how bad it is out there. We have to turn inward and say, what's happening in here? And what's happening in me? Somebody said, I, I can't remember, Lance quoted it. Lance, I don't remember if this is your quote, but it's like, if you want to see revival, go into your closet, draw a circle and stand in it and ask God to bring it in the circle. <laughs> If you want revival, do that. Say, God, bring revival in me. Revive me first. And then just expand the circle to your family. Bring your family inside. Say, God, bring revival in this circle. I mean, just, but it's so many times we think, oh, God, bring revival out there. Fix the world. Fix all those terrible, bad, unholy people. And God's looking at us going like, really? Is, are your hands clean? Right? Psalm 24, is your heart pure? Is your conscience clear? Can you throw a stone? Are you without sin? So I think Paul, because he goes on right here, is to say, these are the kinds of people who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. Can we just make sure that, that like, this doesn't say all women are weak-willed? Can I just qualify? There? But there are weak-willed women and there are awful male leaders. There's two sets of people in this little text who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. What do bad leaders do? They find people who feel shame and want to fix that shame by, by performing and by giving leadership to people. And these people will manipulate human beings so that they can control them and they can get what they want. They're swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth, just as Jans and Jambers, Jambers, Jambres, Jambres, anybody know? I don't know. Jambers, I'll go Jambers, opposed Moses. So all these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So Paul's talking about leaders who are coming into the church 
who, who are these kinds of people, have these kinds of hearts, have this kind of character, and they, they worm their way in to gain control over people, manipulate them, and use them f- to fulfill the desires listed above. To use them for money and pleasure and power. I think Paul's talking about compromised Christian leaders. Um, just last night, uh, I heard another story of a very well-known Christian leader who has been credibly accused of sexual immorality. And it just feels like every three or four days or every couple weeks, there's someone else who's falling. Someone else... Um, and it's, and it's terrible because it's like one of these people where I'm like, one of the most meaningful moments of my life happened in that place under the thing that that man, through God's power, built. And it just breaks my heart. Breaks my heart for his family, for his wife, for his children, for all the people he discipled and prophesied over. And I'm just going, Lord, what is happening today? What's happening? And it doesn't mean that all the things that God did through him are worthless. I don't believe that. Like, we just got to go back to our Bible. Read the Old Testament. You won't find a single leader in there that was without sin or didn't screw up or didn't lose everything at some point. So I'm not saying the whole thing that gets built by people like that who fall is worthless. I'm not saying that. But I'm also saying, why is it happening so frequently? So at some point... If what you're doing continually produces a certain result, you have to start asking yourself the question, what is it about what we've built and how we're doing things is creating this story over and over and over again? Maybe what we're doing or how we're doing it actually isn't according to the way God created us and called the church and how he wants to build things. Because the Bible's pretty clear, right? Malachi 2.3, God says this, Because of this, I will rebuke your descendants. So God's saying the compromise in the priesthood, in the temple, in the kings, with the prophets, with the shepherd, all these people, because of how you're acting and because you're not taking care of my house and living according to my ways, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rebuke your descendants. Listen to this. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival activities. So the question today in the American church, do we know that God? Do we know that God? The God who says, listen, you're so compromised. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the dung from the animals as they excrete it while you murder them, cover their blood. I'm going to take that dung and I'm going to smear it on your face because that's how I feel about your worship and your sacrifice and your prayer. Or do we just know Jesus is my homeboy? He's my buddy. He goes everywhere I go, right? Like, judgment isn't a thing, you know, because God is love, and he just loves everything and all ways and all things, and, you know, it's just like, and yet God says, listen, how you do what you do in my presence, in my name, it matters. You know what the story of Cain and Abel is really about? How seriously God takes sin. That's what it's about. It is like a story about how serious God takes how we treat each other. And then it's a story of redemption and grace because God tells Cain, I'm going to protect you even in your sin as I send you away. I'm still going to protect you. I'm still going to call you back. But in the midst of it, 
He says, I'll smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. So in that, if we start to look at what's happening in the world and what's happening in the church, right, um, uh, uh, with leaders following and all this stuff, I think at some point we have to start to question what we're building and why we're building it and how we're building it. Um, And what is the result? And then after that, I think we have to say, what is God looking for? This is the key. What does God want? Not what do Americans want. Like, where do American Christians want to worship where do they want to go? Because I'm old enough to remember when we moved out of, out of really beautiful church buildings into strip malls, and we removed crosses. Anybody else remember this? There's a whole conversation about you can't talk about the blood of Jesus because that's offensive and weird, and we've got to make things relevant, make people feel safe and comfortable. And you're like, how do you take the blood of Jesus out of, <laughs> out of the church? And so there's this whole thing, and I'm so glad to be back where church buildings matter. Not because church buildings are the church, but because God loves to dwell in places with people over time. Just all over the scripture, God chooses places to build an altar and say, go there and worship me and remember what I did in these places. Build history with me, with a people. So I think God's, um, if you look through the Bible, here's what God's searching for. From Genesis to Revelation, God is searching for a dwelling place. What does God want? God wants a place to dwell with human beings, whether it's the garden or it's in the wilderness or it's in Jesus Christ incarnate or it's in the church or it's in the new heavens and the new earth. God is always looking to dwell in and amongst a people. And here's what I think has happened in our day and age. I think we, at some point, stopped building houses of God and started building platforms for leaders. And God never asked us to build a platform for him. Isn't it interesting? It's always about houses. God says, my house will be a house. Why does he say house? Because it's not a house. It's a temple. How many of you have been to the temple? It's a big house. Like, you're like, is that a house? It's not a house, but God says, it is a house because I dwell there. I want to dwell amongst my people. Build me a home And I think it matters because I think he wants the church to feel like a home, to operate like a family, Um, not just a social club, right? And and not just a collection of individuals who happen to agree on a few things. It's brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. There's a reason he uses house and home. So so what do we see there, right? Like in, in, in what's happening is I think as... As we have built things that God never asked us to build, I think what we've seen is the effects those things have on human beings, that human beings aren't meant, and this is really key in our world, especially young people in here. If you ask, like, young people today, what do you want to be when you grow up? Then the number of people who say, I want to be an influencer, I want to be famous, has gone like this. And can I just say, like, God didn't wire us for fame, He didn't wire us for celebrity. It eats human beings. It corrodes them and corrupts them. And the desire for it, just like Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the desire to be wealthy, like that desire in you to be rich and to have no cares, all this stuff, guess what? It can corrupt you in the same way the desire for fame and prominence, it it corrupts human beings. And the problem is we have built the church in a way that does that for people. 
And then when it eats them alive, it eats them, chews them up, eats them, and spits them out. We blame the person rather than the platform. Isn't that interesting? So what we do is just go get a new person, put them in the same thing, and then what happens? We just, like, wash, rinse, repeat. And I get it that you're like, you're doing that right now. <laughs> and I get it. And I, I, don't, I don't know where this is going in the church, and I don't know how to get out of it. But there's a reason also that, that one of the things we've tried to do at this church, it, and I try to do it by sitting down. Do you notice even my, like, my body language right now? Like, I'm trying to match who I think Jesus is. And I don't want to walk around the stage and have you think I'm funny and awesome and witty and, wow, he crafted an amazing talk. I, I want you to hear his word this morning, and I, I want you to get through me because I'm not impressive, and I don't have it all together, and I don't have all the answers. I just got called to be up here. That's it. And I'm one of 300 people. The best sermon I heard this week, guys, was Jonathan Klein. He's right over there at 5.30 in the morning, give a five-minute talk on his devotionals. And I sat there going like, oh my gosh, wow, the priesthood of all believers, what, like, ugh. Luke 14, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. I think we're living in a transitional period where the salt has lost its taste, but we keep producing it, hoping it will come back. And so we're like, well, let's just keep trying. Maybe we'll get better at it. Maybe we'll figure out a new way or a new gimmick or a new technology or a new strategy and it'll come back. And it's not coming back. And it's churning through people and it's churning through leaders and it's having no impact in our society. What we've basically seen in this generation is Christians gathered into larger and larger and larger containers while the church in numbers has declined and declined and declined. Um, and here's what I think has happened. I think we have traded the difficulty of a home life together for a community kind of disembodied, nobody knows me, nobody knows if I'm there or if I'm not there, nobody knows if I give or I don't give, nobody knows much of anything about me. I show up, I listen, I observe, I spectate and I leave. But 50 years ago, you couldn't do that in church because the average church was 100 people. And if you didn't show up, everyone knew. And then they drove by your house and like, your car's in the front drive. What? And they probably stopped and knocked on your door and like, are you sick? Because if you're sick, I'll bring you some food, I'll help you. Because they just would assume you weren't at church because you were sick. Or something happened or they needed to check on you. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's crazy how things have shifted in 50 years. And I think we've lost so much good because I think, I think the church is meant to be lived like a home. But Jesus said right before the salt passage about costly discipleship, and here's what I think. I think costly discipleship is really salty. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book about this, but I, I think discipleship that isn't costly loses its saltiness really fast seems really exciting at the beginning and then it just kind of it's diminishing returns 
So what does this look like? If this is all true, and, and, and again, I'm not here to convince you. You might be sitting here thinking, I think you're totally wrong, and that's okay. But if you're like this, I think this is true, I think this is right, but you're like me, I don't really know what to do about it. I, I, don't, I think our, our generation is obsessed with changing systems. I, I just, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to change the church in America. <laughs> I have a little bit of influence here, that's, so that's why I'm going to put my hand to the plow in this group of people. But I think the Bible says a lot about this, especially in the Old Testament, so I, I want to read this. What can we do to respond today? Amos 9.1. Again, here's what God is saying to Israel. He said, I, I saw the Lord. Amos said, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. Where's the altar? It's in the temple. He's like, I saw God in the most important place uh, at the altar. And God said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with a sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Now, I'm hoping God's being metaphorical here, right? <laughs> but listen to what he's saying. He's like, where this has gone is so far from my heart, from human beings, I'm going to have to destroy it and rebuild it. But listen, it's crazy. In Amos 9.11, he goes back and he, God says, in that day, after I do all these things, after things get really bad, you know what I'm going to do? In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. Why David's tent? I want you to think about that for a second. Why David's tent? Of all the different iterations of the temple and of Israel and all these things, why not Moses' tabernacle, right? Why not Solomon's temple? You know, why not Obed-Edom's house with just a little bit of group of people in the ark and they're blessed? Like, of all things, why did he choose David's tent to say, I'm going to restore that? I'm just going to give you a second to ponder. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. So here's the thing I want to catch. Rather than the specific response, I want you to catch. God says, things will not go on like this forever. That's where the hope is. Things have gotten really bad, and they're going to get worse. But guess what? They will not go on like this forever. I will return and I will show up and I will fix things. He says, I will do these things. That's the key part of this. It's like, you're not going to fix it. You can't cause the problem and then fix it, friends. <laughs> right? So like, we cause the problem. We don't get to fix it. God says, I need you to, to kind of move out of the way. Let me fix it in the way I want to fix it. Joel 2 says this, even now declares the Lord. So what can we do to respond? One is to acknowledge and this is, friends, this is key. If we don't get to the truth, we won't respond rightly. And here's the truth. There is judgment, like currently, on our nation and on our church that is from God, that is right. Can we just say he's right? Right? Chase said at one time, he read in a book, he's like, Romans 1, when you read all this stuff that's happening, he's like, this isn't the evidence that God's judgment is coming. This is the evidence that God's judgment is here. And we're living in it. And so what do you do when you recognize that we're living in God's judgment? What you do is, Joel 2, it says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. What do you do 
when things go bad and stuff is in decline and the world is getting worse and there's wars and rumors of wars and there's all this stuff and everyone wants to say the world's ending and Jesus is coming back, all this stuff. But what does God say? God says, in all that stuff, here's what I want you to do. Return to me with all your heart. So the question is, in this day, is my whole heart with Jesus? That's the question I have to answer really personally. Is my whole heart, all my heart with Jesus? Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So the question is, when I read the news and I, I hear about a leader falling or I see a friend walk away from their faith, what do I do with that? Do I kind of go like, oh, that's a bummer, and I move on with my life? Or do I fast and weep and mourn? Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and have pity and live behind, leave behind a blessing. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber, let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar, let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations, why should they say among their peoples, where is their God? So what's the response when we see the churches in decline, we see leaders falling, and we notice, um, which isn't happening here, but it's happening everywhere else, where we notice that the young have left the church. I mean, I, I, I praise God that our church now is, is like almost majority under 30. It's incredible, but I, I promise you, if you travel to churches, that is not the case. Young people have left the church. We have to ask ourselves, Why? Why do 75% of kids raised in Christian homes in churches in America leave their faith in college? That's the stat. And some people say 60, some say up to 85. Right? If you were doing anything else where you did a procedure and, and the patient dies 85% of the time, you would probably stop and question, are we doing it wrong? Is there something about our life in relationship to money, and sports, and business, and where we live, and how much we go to church, and how much I read my Bible, and how I treat my neighbor, and is there something wrong? Because the result we are getting is not what we desire. The Bible says, when you see these things happen, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm, call a fast, weep between the altars. There's a study done by Pine Tops Foundation uh, four or five years ago. They estimated if nothing changes in the American church, in the next 20 years, we'll see 42 million young people leave the faith. I want you to grasp that. 42 million young people. And I know what everyone in here is thinking, not my kids. Right? Because we all want to say it's not going to be my kids. All right? My kids are going to stay in church. They're going to stay in faith. And they're just like, I just want you to know, <laughs> this is going to be hard, friends. We live in difficult times. We live in contested space. We are entering terrible days. Right? So the question is, the kind of life we're forming, can it keep our children connected to Jesus? Because um, we are running a great experiment, right? As my friend John Tyson would say, he said, it's funny that we make everything God but God, and then our kids go to college, and we wonder why they don't love and serve God. 
So, what happens when this starts to happen is the church has to get into a season and into a posture that invites God's response. Okay? I want you to hear this. We have to get into a season of time. It's not a one-time thing. It's actually something God's like, hey, I want you to go into uh, a time of fasting, a time of repentance, a time of uh, seeking and asking and knocking at the door saying, God, what is it you're doing and how do we get aligned with you in these days? Right? We can't keep saying peace, peace where there's no peace. Right? Um, and then there's the posture of our life that I think really matters. And the, the posture of repentance. Um, like if you walked into the place where Israel is repenting of their sin and they're asking God to come back, you would notice something's happening here. Right? These people are, they're after something. Um, they need something from God and they've aligned their worship and their prayer. They're aiming at something different in this time. Right? Um, so I felt like the Lord just saying this morning, it's like, hey, why don't you guys just do that, right? Rather than talking about it. So I'm going to invite the band back up. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time um, practicing this together. I felt like the Lord just saying, like, hey, I want you to spend a moment at the end here um, in repentance and prayer. Like, ask, like, call the body. You're the sacred assembly this morning because you showed up. <laughs> and so he's like, call them together. Call them to fast. Call them to weep. Call them to pray. Call them to mourn. I bet you, if you took out a pad and pencil right now, you would start writing names of people you know who have walked away from the faith, and I bet you could write until we end our service. And if you started writing not just their name and they left their faith, but you started writing about the secondary effects of that decision on their life, I bet you before we ended, you would be weeping. If you started writing down divorce, Depression, addiction, despair, suicide. Like this person that you know their name, you know their story, you grew up in youth group with, you are good friends, you are business partners, and they chucked the whole thing. That's where we have to get it at the church to, to actually see the thing that we need to see and respond the way we need to respond. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to respond in a, so the, the season is right, but the posture. So I'm going to ask you, if you're physically able right now, I want you to kneel in your pew. If you're just like physically able and dressed appropriately, right, all that stuff. But uh, if you're not, can you just take like a posture of like, um, just bow. Just, I feel like there's something about humility that's low. Um, We're going to ask for uh, is Sue in here? Where's Sue at? Get up here, Sue. Come on up here. Lance, would you come up here? I just felt like the Lord asked me to have a couple people just pray. Um, I don't know, is Billy still here? Billy, come on down here. I think you showed up for a reason this morning.
but just wanted to have some people pray some prayers of repentance, whatever's on their heart. Sometimes we need to hear what it sounds like to get your own heart postured. of, we're repenting of compromise, we're repenting of idolatry, mm-hmm. we're repenting of apathy and lukewarmness. Mm. And we're repenting for ourselves, but we're repenting also for the church. We're repenting for our nation. Systems that have um, harmed human beings for all the church baggage, for all the fallen leaders, for all the stuff that we have given our hearts to, given our money to, helped build that weren't actually God's plan. And we can just be honest here this morning there's none righteous. <laughs> there, there's no one here who can be like, I'm so glad I didn't participate in that. No, we all can just say, God, we are sorry. things have gotten to. And hopefully we'll get from a place of repentance to a place of just crying out for restoration. Restore David's fallen tent. David's tent was a place of worship and prayer. Where it wasn't about a single person. It was God in the center. So I'm just going to ask our friends here to pray for us. Just join them in your heart. Holy Spirit, come. Spirit of wisdom and revelation, fall on this place. and condemnation but our hearts are tender to you Lord Jesus I repent of judgment I repent of thinking that I could have done it better than the leaders before me 
other things in front of you, Jesus. I repent, repent of taking on my own power and refusing your grace. So compassionate and kind and merciful and 
restorer. You're the builder. You are the one that we take our name from. You're the one that gives us our identity. We don't have to grab onto any identity lesser than the King Jesus. We receive our sonship and our daughtership. We receive the glory that comes from friendship with the risen King who lives to make intercession for us.
us with just the bad news. You never leave us just in our sin or our rebellion. But you actually say, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, repent of their sin, that you'll hear from heaven, God, forgive our sins and it actually says you'll heal our land so this morning we repent Jesus we agree with you about what's been happening we agree with your judgment that in many ways we have become compromised we've become worldly we have pursued all the good things that you have created and not worshiped you not surrendered to you all those things and we we just this morning I agree with Billy's prayer we want to be surrendered and we are thankful that you are merciful and compassionate that you're slow to anger that's who you are and you always are looking for a way to relent of your judgment and invite us back into your embrace and so we just pray right now God I pray for the church in America that we would enter into a season of repentance God I pray that waves of repentance would hit the body of Christ in these days and that you would call us back to our identity as being a house of God, a dwelling place of God, a house of prayer for all nations, God, that in the church there would be neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, but we would reflect your nature into the world, that we would be salty, God. So would you restore to us, Jesus, the joy of salvation? Restore to us the joy of salvation, that the church would be a community of joy because its job is looking at you, the most joyful being in the universe. Father God, we love that that's who you are. This morning, we pray that you would call us back. And I thank you, God, that you have called us to such a time of this to bring revival in this generation, not because we're smart or because of our technology or our strategy, but because it's what you want. You want that no one would perish, that all would come to repentance. That's who you are, God. And so we, in this moment, want to clear our lives out. We want to clear our hearts out. We want to make space for a season of repentance, for a posture in our lives of humility, Jesus, and grace to enter in deep, deep, deep into the church, that that's who we are. Who is the church? They're the humble, grace-filled, grateful ones. Oh, Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, we love your work. I pray just pray that you would be so near. Anyone in here, God, who has been wounded or hurt by the church right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and restore? Would you come and bind up the brokenhearted, God? Anyone here who's suffering today, who is struggling, who has is living in these kind of days we talked about, would you come and be near right now, Holy Spirit? Would you come and minister the love of Jesus to their hearts right now? We love you, Jesus. Here's how we're going to end. I'm going to invite the band to sing this song, but I'm also just going to invite you to stay in worship if you want. We're a little bit late on time, so feel free to uh, go grab your kiddos, or if you need to leave, do that. But would you just stand to your feet? And I, I just... 
I'm going to just speak this this morning before you leave, which is like, uh, we can either, you know, kind of wallow in despair at the days we've been born in, or we can say, I want to be part of that revival generation. I want to be a part of the leaders who like grabbed the law and took it to the center and read it out loud and said, we're going to live for God in these days. That's the invitation today. So the kiddos should be coming back in soon. So let's just sing until the kiddos return. And uh, you're free to go at any moment. Once your kids come, you're free to go or you're free to linger as well. We'll be here for a little bit.